the Not Your Usual podcast is brought to you by Glaver, the one and only tangerine honey spiced whiskey liqueur. Glaver's origins are bathed in bold experimentation. Born in Leith in 1947 and awarded a record 15 times at the International Wine and Spirit Competition, this unique liqueur is rich, it's sweet, it's warming, and it's wonderfully versatile. Fearlessly pioneering far-flung spice bursts, Glaver is most definitely not your usual. Okay, right. Cheers. Cheers. That's how they do it in the pros. Hello, I'm Peter Simpson from The Skinny Magazine, and this is Not Your Usual, a new podcast where we talk to interesting uh, and unusual Scottish creative people about their process, about what they do, how they do it, and why. Uh, I'm joined today by comedian, theatre maker, renaissance man, and recently off a big tour in a van, David Callahan. Hello. Hello, hello. Uh, how are you doing? Have you recovered from van life? Um... No, no. I've had 24 hours since I've returned and I was on the road for 32 days. So yeah, pretty stressful. I'm basically the husk of a man. (laughs) Well, ideal time to be talking then about your (laughs) life, career and work. So can't beat it. Um, We are here courtesy of Gleva and the clink that you heard at the beginning of the podcast was us trying the Vermilion, which is a Gleva cocktail from their Glocktail range. It's Gleva. White and Mackay whiskey, vermouth, and blood orange juice. Mmm. And even though I mixed it as David was walking into the studio, and he will tell you that I spilled of it, it's still very nice. That's so nice. It's nice. It's rich. It's kind of like, it's very sweet, but in a nice way. It's nice to be sponsored by something that's nice. It is. Yeah, so we're here with David, um, ahead of the Edinburgh Fringe. We're in the Skinny's offices in Edinburgh, which shortly will be overrun Edinburgh, that is, not the offices, by performers from all over the world bringing interesting comedy, theatre, dance, uh, magic. Lots of magic this year, I've noticed. Um, and so we thought it was an ideal time to talk to someone who's kind of pushing the boundaries of comedy and theatre and doing very interesting stuff. But David, first things first, how did you get to be such an interesting comedy theatre man? What was your kind of introduction? What was your way in to what you do now. So I've been coming to the Edinburgh Fringe since 1990. My parents used to bring me here and it really felt at the time and certainly through my, through the 1990s and in the early 2000s, like a place where um, people were showcasing events and spectacles that no one, nowhere else you could really see. Now, obviously that's probably not the case, but from my childish perspective, it certainly was. Um, And I think probably the most formative ones are I saw Daniel Kitson do Stories of the Wobbly Hearted in 2005 at the Travis. And I also, it wasn't at Edinburgh, but I saw Stuart Lee do a 90s comedian in the Blue Room downstairs at, uh, at the Gala Theatre in Durham, which is um, from Durham City. And the craft that was put into those uh, shows, you know, the the work and the energy and the love and the feeling that the audience had and the group community feeling that the audience had was so palpable I think it really instilled in me a joy and a love for that kind of um you you know I'm often described as genre busting um, and I think all of the stuff that I really like is genre busting as well so I also saw um Powell and Pressburg as a matter of life and death adapted at the National Theatre when I was 16 into like this um, big, large-scale musical. And I love Matter of Life and Death because it is so um, 
It's so well. Have you ever seen it? Is that the one that has like the kind of black and white and the color switching yes. sequences? Yeah. Yeah. So he, so what happens is David Niven starts off as a, a doomed airman. Um, he's flying back towards uh, uh, Croydon Aerodrome. And it's the middle of the night and there's only one woman on the uh, intercom. Uh, uh, on the intercom. <laughs> uh, on the, uh, not, not from a forces background. Uh, <laughs> you know, the thing. On the, 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 yeah, yeah. the walkie-talkie, yeah. you know. The, <laughs> so, so, so she's the only, she is the only person who is awake uh, manning, the, manning the radio. And they fall in love over the over the radio, and then, but because he's just about to die, he jumps out of the plane, and because the the fog is so thick, the angel of death misses him. He lands in the sea, and then he survives. They end up meeting up, and the angel of death comes back uh, a day later and says, "You have to come with me. I missed you last night." And he says, "But in those four, in those twenty four hours." I fell in love and you've given me that. That is your mistake, not mine. And therefore I should be allowed to live. Now, that is uh, one part. That was one part of the story. The other part of the story is um, perhaps he was a lot closer to the sea than he thought. He fell out of uh, the plane and has a brain injury. And so he takes essentially God to court in heaven um, whilst he's being operated on for his brain injury. And at no point are you ever sure whether the um, supernatural or the the, uh, the kind of mystical elements of it are real or imagined, because there's lots about him smelling fried onions and, and parts of um, his, his, uh, his brain malfunctioning, time stopping, that kind of thing. It's really nicely woven in and beautiful as well. You know, it, it's the sets are immaculately made. It is a melodrama, but I think emotively it's really um powerful i guess the good thing about theater in that respect seeing that at the national is that they managed to extend it so in film you can convey all of those emotions with tiny looks and the interplay between two actors but when you're in the the um it's not the gilgood or the olivier it's in the olivier the big turntable stage you have to make it bigger and bigger and bigger and you have to find more and more inventive ways to do that so it was really nice to watch something that i loved on a very small screen, on an incredibly big stage, and understand that the emotions that are being transferred are the same, really. Um, so, yeah, so I think those are really formative experiences for me. I always went to see club comedy in Edinburgh um, when I was a kid. But I, over the years, I think I've just become softer. Like, I think as a teenager, I loved how combative it was. And... The heckling and the you know the 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 real kind of sweaty bear pit experience of it, but I think I've just I don't know that fell away. The joy of that fell away, and certainly when I started doing comedy, started doing comedy in 2012, and I was a club comic um, all the way up till the pandemic. Um, but I started to change how I'd make shows in 2016. Uh, so in 2016, I I bought these convex mirrors um, that were made out of fiberglass, and you know the kinds that you, when you go into shops that you can see down the different aisles because they're curved in a certain way, or if you go around a, bl- a blind corner, the ones you see in the countryside exactly. on someone's wall, so you can see who's coming round. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But so I bought them, but they were more domed. Um, so I bought two of them, and then I had two really cheap projectors, and they projected onto those domes, curved the image, and uh, it projected back onto the wall behind them. And so I made a planetarium and did the show in the round. 
and the show wasn't very good. Like, I I think I really sincerely want to apologise to anyone who came to see me in between 20... I think before 2019. <laughs> <laughs> Is this like one of those product recall announcements? So, where you're like, I'm so any sorry. Any David Callahan content consumed before like June 2019. Yeah, it's bad. The millennium it, bug hit me. Yeah. It, yeah. It, there was a delayed reaction, but it really got me in the Everything end. Everything was off. Um, yeah. No, there was bright sparks work-wise in that period, but I think I was just working out what I wanted to do. And I wasn't sure. So like... I did my first fringe. Uh, me and um, Paul McDaniel did t- two half an hours in in 2013, and I did. Uh, me and Amy Gledhill did two half an hours in 2014, and I did them. Uh, and I was a very mainstream comic then, and that carried on till 2015, where I did a show that was like really quite successful. You know, like critically quite acclaimed, packed out every day. It was just a really strange little rise to popularity, um, but I didn't really feel any sense of joy from it and I knew that the environment that that I put myself in wasn't right so 2016 was dramatically different and then 2017 and 2018 I did this um choose your adventure thing with an episode of Target so I um there was an episode of Target filmed at my mum's house in 1996 and I decided to remake that shot for shot and pretend to be the director and then we had an intranet which people connected their phones to and uh there was this whole, <laughs> there was this antagonist character. It was at the time, do you remember, um, what was he called? Count Dankula. So Count Dankula, I don't know if you remember, Count Dankula in 2016 um, was this kind of online far-right internet uh, celebrity who was praised by the by the far-right and uh, people who were Nazi sympathisers. And um, so I invented this character who's an antagonist in the show called uh, Dankenstein, who was like a parody of him. And it was all about, the show was about defeating the far right and enjoying silliness and, and, you know. Um, And it didn't really work either. But I think the people who loved it came out of it going, there was so many ideas in that. Like it was so packed and so, um, so full of endeavour. And I think that's what I took from it. The things that I enjoyed about those experiences, about doing the doing the planetarium, doing the choose your own adventure, was that the the time, the effort, the work was the reward for the audience. Really, there's loads of slick people who do really slick stuff, but often it's really reductive, you know. And I think that's what I don't like about the club comedy world is that it has to be slick because the relationship is combative and transactional and when you do working men's clubs it's often about winning it's not about the communal experiences you almost versus the audience and you have to beat them and win and i think that just wore on me over the years so i was still doing club comedy right until the um until the industry collapsed in 2020. And whilst over the pandemic, I watched all of my friends do their comedy shows online. Um, I realised I hadn't watched any other club comedy for like nearly a year. And I've been doing this thing for seven or eight years. It's like, why has that happened? Um, And then also over 2020, I taught my, my university closed down during the pandemic. So I ended up having to teach myself a first class master's degree in animation. Um, but I had a lot of time to do it. Um, and then that started rolling into the work. So now 
I'd already had this idea in 2018 for this new show. Um, and that was supposed to go at the fringe in 2020, but I'm really glad that it didn't because it wouldn't have been ready. N- now I can, I can animate and I can, and I've built my own augmented reality comedy theater show. I'm really proud of it. And I can take it out to Reykjavik. And when it wins an award in Reykjavik, I can go, yeah, because it's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's kind of why I want to apologize to everyone for 2013 onwards. Because if I'd done anything as good as this, then I would be really proud of it. But I'm really ashamed of those bits of work. And I'm really sorry that I charge people like five quid a time to watch me flounder around. And that was five quid in 2013. Yeah, that would, exactly. That would, that would have gone a long it's, it's a lot of money. It, it was a lot of money. It would have gone days. a long way. <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose I wanted to just come back quickly on to, so if you think of like club comics as you're kind of like, that's what most a lot of people's like standard, like expectation and understanding of comedy is. Yeah. Someone who goes and does five, 10, 20 minutes. Yeah. And there are a lot of very, very good club comics. And there's, it certainly seems to have been more of a diversification in terms of who's getting good spots and who's like coming out with interest and stuff you talked about those kind of formative experiences things like Stuart Lee and the National Theatre do you think it's just a case that your work kind of came from a desire to really basically a kind of like as a response to what those people were doing or did it come from more of those like formative um so a bit of both I guess I I like I think it's really important to state that when I have a go at club comedy I think the like vast, vast majority of those people are incredibly talented, much more talented than me, and are doing something that is fantastic. And yeah. I've been in loads of club rooms where club comedy has, you know, it sings, it's brilliant. Um, it just wasn't, It. I think I just became averse to it through my own insecurities and stuff. And, and two things. One, I used to feel very jealous of other comics. And then in about 20, late 2016... Um, I started thinking about what I wanted to do. And I started realising that the, my, the the work that I want to make is the pinnacle of me and no one else is going to do that. So I don't really care about any what anyone else does because they're not doing what I want to do. So they can be as successful doing what they do as possible, but um, but but it's not what I want to do. So I... It doesn't matter to me at all. It kind yeah. of lives in a in a different world, and I see. I really see the work that I do a lot more like bands or performance art or something. I don't really see myself in the comedy world. It is comedy, hmm. but I'd much rather be like Mark Hollis or the Blue Nile or someone. You know, you bring out something that it lives within its own ecosystem every fifteen years, and people. People think it's amazing, and then it just goes away again. I I really don't like the idea of being a celebrity. Mm. Um, I think the dream is that, you know, the reason that the show is called Everything That's Me Is Falling Apart and not David Callahan, Everything That's Me Is Falling Apart, is because ideally no one would know who I was, you know. No one really cares about the guy who lights the firework, right? It's the firework that you want to see. Ideally, there's like that David Bowie thing where he says – Art is never finished until you've until you've lost the hand of the artist. That's when it's that's when it's done, and that's kind of how I feel. I feel much more like I'm building concept albums than I'm a comedian who is putting out a version of myself on stage. That's so comparatively with other acts, I 
they they don't it doesn't really matter to me what they do i think they're brilliant and i really enjoy them but it doesn't have any bearing on my work anymore mm. i certainly would take bad experiences doing comedy really to heart but they only really started happening i mean they happened a few times in the early days but as i was doing like pretty likable club comedy people would like it you know they would they would go oh well he's you know he's trying whatever they they found it relatable but then when i started doing stuff that was stranger 2016 onwards um that's when real distrust <laughs> wore in and getting through that yeah was was the hard bit but now i think i've got a way of working that the work doesn't define me in the same way as it did anymore um, I'm much prouder of it. And also, it's much more robust. Mm. Like, I'm not... When you go into a club environment, it's not your house and it's not theirs. So they have no reason to buy into your world mm. and you have kind of no reason to ask them to. You kind of have to meet them in the middle. You've got mm. to meet the audience, you know, where your two worlds cross over. Whereas when you do the hour they're sort of coming into, and you've got a set on stage and stuff, they're coming into your little world and you're saying, it's all right, come on, you know, come and, come and enjoy this, you know, give your, give 5% and I will do the rest. Yeah. Um, and that's very powerful as an experience. I, I, I don't feel really like a comedian. I, f- I kind of feel like I, I make things that are totally different to, to the person that I am. And then if people like them, that's good. But if people don't, I kind of understand and it doesn't affect me emotionally anymore. Um, Whereas I never found that from club comedy. You're introduced as your name and people judge you. And so much of the material will be about this thing happened to me. Yeah. This is a story about something that happened in my life. Yeah. And that then becomes the thing of like, they not only do they not like, they didn't like that joke. They didn't like the, they didn't like the joke about the bus. They didn't like the fact that I got the bus. Yeah. I don't even think they really liked the bus, and the bus was just a peripheral character. There's that Nish Kumar bit, wasn't it, where someone said to him, "Well, that's an hour. I'm never going to get back." And he was like, "Mate, I'm like a decade and a half in. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about the last 15 years yeah. of my life, and I have no other plan from yeah, yeah. going on from here. It's an hour for you. Oh my god, it's, it's yeah. so much more for me. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I suppose maybe that's a good time to move on to. Uh, everything that's made has fallen apart yeah. which is kind of like so it's an augmented reality theatrical one person comedy show i am slowing down the description because there's a lot to try to fit in yeah. how did i mean you've spoken a lot about how you've kind of developed this your kind of style over time and the things that have influenced it and the reasons that you've gone in those directions but this like specific show without giving too much away because people can go and see it after mm-hmm. they listen to this podcast um how did that show in particular kind of come about what was the kind of motivating zing to get that going so i wish i could tell you that uh it developed over time but they really come in one mm. you know they come in like a big they, i've got the next three things that I'm going to do. And they all take four years to make. Um, I've just started the, just this year, I've just started the next one for 2020. It's going to go to the fringe in 26. So it'll be done. There'll be a version of it at the end of 2024. And then there's some actual engineering. I have to learn how to be an engineer for it to work um, for 2026. But I think that's the only way that it 
that it works. Uh, when you say engineering, civil, structural, <laughs> um, mechanical, mechanical, mechanical engineering. <laughs> yeah. So it's based. I, I built a new road. I can, <laughs> yeah, come and see this bridge that yeah. I was going to do half an hour on. So I was, I was downstairs at the old Monkey Barrel Bar with mm. the comedian Richard Brown. And I started talking about it. And at the time, I was writing it down on napkins and trying to explain to him what it was. And it was so, it was so visually clear in my head what I was saying. But he tells me that until uh, he saw it in late 2021, so that's three years later, he had no idea what I was talking about. And I would speak to him. I'd speak to him about working on it literally every time I see him. And he's one of my best friends. So um, he humoured me for an incredibly long time. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, basically how it works is there is a two-metre wooden disc on stage. On top of that disc, there is a train, a toy train, that um, goes around in a big ring, two-metre uh, circumference. Um, on that train, there is a live webcam. Uh, that webcam goes straight into the laptop, and the webcam is pointed towards the centre of the circle, and in the centre of the circle, pointing outwards, are a series of conical boxes. Now... In the conical boxes, there are uh, miniature dioramas. And then I, I used that animation degree that I built, that I did in 2020, to animate characters um, in an augmented reality system that I've built on top of those dioramas. So it's handmade, small sets, animated live, and then stories about it. That's how it works. That, friends, is not your usual Edinburgh Fringe comedy show. When you hear the words augmented reality, tiny train, and conical boxes, you know you're in for a good time. <laughs> and that's the show that you took to the Reykjavik Fringe. You took it on tour um, just before we, well, basically, literally just before we sat down to have a chat, didn't you? Yes, so I got back on, it's Tuesday today, I got yeah. back on Sunday. So, yeah, it's been away for a month. I At the Reykjavik Fringe, I won the Take My Breath Away panel prize. Um and sold out the run. Uh, so then it's going to Stockholm in August. Uh, and hopefully Finland, not quite got the date yet, but Finland next May. So, And then Sundland as well in November. And uh, when I was growing up, Sundland was an incredibly exciting place. I've come from Durham City, right? So Sundland was like the bright lights. Yeah. Um, and I was born in in 1989 so i was 15 in 2004 and that's when field music and the future heads and maximum park and all those bands yeah. came through and they were all from our region and it was a very very exciting time so i've always wanted to take a fringe show to sunderland and to do it really well um and i've done gigs in sunderland and due to my own just nervousness they have al almost always gone terribly um so now that I've done this show like nearly a hundred times and it's won awards and toured internationally, I can take it back to Sunderland and change some first impressions about my work, you know? Um, but that's probably the most, I'm doing the fringe for a week and then I'm doing a week in Gothenburg and a week in uh, Finland, but Sunderland is like the jewel in the crown for yeah. me. That's the most important one. Sunderland's the one they all want to play. <laughs> you play it, you play it twice in your career. <laughs> I mean, the show sounds like an enormous kind of undertaking in terms of props and tech and stuff. Is it? Has it been? I suppose it must be that. Is it still fun to do all the 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 bigger the projects get? Because you do sometimes find that, like, the bigger a project gets, it becomes a, a bit kind of unmanageable, and you find yourself like off kind of doing things that you didn't expect you would be doing, or doing like 
stuff around the edges of what it is that you actually want to do. A project of that size, how do you kind of tackle it in terms of you think, I've got to build this train track, I've got to find myself some conical forms? I guess, so it's the people I'm indebted to are um, my dad's mate, Brian, who's a retired Geordie carpenter. Um, He's still a Geordie. Uh, (laughs) We never give that that up. That's a lifelong condition. Um, But he, you know, it was all built around, I I bought this train set, right? (laughs) So it all started with the train set and then everything is built out from the size of the train set. So like the maths is set, you know, it's only as big as it can be because that's how big the train set is. Um, And then you buy the, you know, you you buy the, the webcam and you work out how big the distance is from the edge of the box to the train and so how wide wide the field of vision is um so those kind of things so the webcam is really dictated by the end of the box to the train so there's a lot of maths that's done for you really Hmm. and then the other person i'm in debt to is um is graham from uh, landing light studios my mate graham what is uh, a really interesting guy and a really great miniaturist so i did all of the 3d designs and then sent them over to him and he handmade everything because um, it just has that ability and talent and they look great. So the really interesting thing about this show is that you come in and you can see that there's miniatures on stage and then you look at the screen and there are miniatures and then characters within that. And I think that's just really, just viscerally really enjoyable mm. to see that there's sort of another thing at play and the train goes round, you know? Mm. In between the stories, the train is moving, there's music playing, that's just enjoyable. It's enjoyable to watch a, a train set. There's there's a part of my PhD that is about um, erratic technology and how it's really enjoyable to play with a typewriter or watch cogs or look at a train set. Um, it's technology that is analog has a real aura about it and mm. it's enjoyable to be in a room with it. And there's yeah. a reason that people like that. Yeah, and I suppose it's harking back a bit to Powell and Pressburger as well. It's creating that kind of sense that people don't really know what to expect next yeah. and creating these kind of like different levels of the story where they're they're watching you tell a story but they're also their eye is drawn yeah to the train one must always look back to the train yeah yeah well i think you have to mirror the so i wanted it to feel precious and i wanted it to feel small and handmade and that is mirrored in all of the 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 stories the stories are you know the british comedy guide wrote a really nice review of it last year that said this is a precious hour um fans of josie long and early bridget christie will find a lot to say over here i left feeling like i'd seen a quiet revolution and you're like yeah i guess i, I guess it's a total reaction to that to the um to the club thing mm. like this is a non-combat space you know yeah. you sit there and there is no no one is shouting at you and there is no um social interaction you have to invest time in it because everything in here is precious yeah. all the miniatures are precious all the characters are small and handmade i'm telling these stories that are like funny but they're a house of cards you mm. know as soon as one person in that room starts behaving badly the whole thing falls away so it has to be, there has to be a sense of community where we're all ensconced within this one little world um and that's really enjoyable and that's kind of that's kind of what i wanted to make it's it's nice to see people look at the boxes and then look at the big screen and understand that there is a there is proper love at work here mm. you know everyone wants to look at miniatures and i'm giving them the opportunity to look at them really really big <laughs> this is why those sylvanian families meme pages on instagram are so massive yeah yeah yeah, yeah. tales of the riverbank is like so enjoyable 
As, as all, do you remember Tales of the Riverbank? Which one is Tales of the Riverbank? That's where in the 1980s they got a load of hamsters and shoved them in toy cars, right? Let's <laughs> not talk about the morality a time. <laughs> of it. But it is very, very funny to see a guinea pig in goggles fly a small plane, right? Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> and it's just enjoyable to, to watch that. So I think without the animal cruelty, that's sort of what I'm bringing to the table with this show. Yeah. A benign version of Tales from the Riverbank. Tales from the Riverbank. Yeah. Um, now, another thing I want to talk about, kind of hit on it briefly, you spoke about doing a whole um, animation masters, is the Night Programmate yeah. in Glasgow, which is it's a kind of multimedia, yeah. sort, sort of, yeah, multi, I mean, I'll let you describe it, because uh, I have just written down multimedia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair enough. Um, so I, I think Programmate's really interesting because so I do it every quarter because it takes three and a half months to to build it. Um, it is not videos. Mm. Uh, I there are loads of people who do excellent video nights, like um, Adult Film Club that Chris Cantrell and, and Sam O'Leary do. That is wonderful, and people send their really really funny videos in, and they're really great hosts, and they have live acts and stuff. It's really really good, right? Um, what Programmate is is live reactive tech, so it's all triggered by me on stage. It is all animations, uh, video indexing, um, live renders, that kind of thing. And it's all built to go runtime. So I, I guess this goes back to the PhD as well. There's a, So my PhD is in liveness and the whole, and there's this huge distinction in liveness between how interactive an audience member is. When you are looking at someone on stage, your, your level of interaction is totally different to when you're looking at a, a video or a film. And you can see it in people. They will lean forward, they'll lean back, they're becoming more engaged, less engaged. You are experience of live work is totally different, even in between films and TV. You know, films and TV are basically the same medium now. But when we watch TV, it has this free son of live that anything can happen. Whereas mm. in film, that's not the same. Yeah. So the flip side of that, so on the on the other podcast that we do for the skinny, the Cine Skinny, you should all listen to it. But uh, we were talking the other day about the when you go to the cinema to watch a film you are in an environment where all the signals are pointing you to actively watch the film you watch the same film in your house and then there's no a lot of those kind of like social cues or just the kind of like cues to an audience member in terms of lighting situation they're all taken away so it's a lot you can watch the same film twice and be really drawn into it when you watch it in a cinema and absolutely like away on your phone yeah when you're watching it in the house. It's fascinating how we think that we need AI for tech to speak to us and to communicate in um, like social signals. You think that that's about to happen, but actually it's already happening. Mm. You know, if you are in a theatre and the lights go down, everyone's quiet yeah. because they understand that the technology is telling them to be quiet. Yeah. So it's a, so that, and that's sort of what programming about. It's like trying to find um, technology and technological ways that are reactive to the to the room so you still keep the free son of live performance but you also have this other techno- technological thing that's doing something different that's doing something bigger um so the, there's loads of animation in it that's badly made by me very quickly um there's loads of like little audio reactive tech stuff there's a lot of live camera little bits and things um you know trying to trying the problem is that uh there's so many filters now that are really good on phones. So yeah. you kind of can't do any of that yeah. <laughs> anymore because they're massively outstripping my capacity to do it. So you have to do something else. But yeah, I'm trying to make something that is 
so that, that still feels really live but has the capacity that technology has and that's what programming is and then i also invite um at least two comedians on every time to give like paid performances of their best stuff so that when people have paid their four or five quid they don't feel ripped off by like hey this that technology is like 20 i've watched 25 minutes of tech yeah but you also watched another hour of like really really good stand-up yeah um yeah i I really enjoy it it's it's a really fascinating experiment to do and i don't think you'll see any other uh, like shows like that in the uk Maybe like Jane Edwards uh, is doing something interesting with uh, Fox Dog Studios at the Jane Edwards show. And I talked to Jane about programming it before I started it and, and like how hers works and how's my, how mine works. And Matt Ewins obviously does does similar things in, in Bristol and there must be loads more. But um, yeah, I'm trying to do something that is, that there's not a lot of replication for it. Yeah. Um, do you know, there's that Richard Thomas who wrote Jerry Spring the Opera. He yeah. always said, if you if you never compared, you don't have to compete, and like that is the same with everything else that I'm building. I, I am just making this one thing, and it hopefully is incomparable to m- the majority of other stuff. So, come and like it if you like it, you know, or hate it. But it just it, it'll just exist. You know, it is this art piece that'll just exist, and that's yeah. fine. And I tell you what, for a podcast called Not Your Usual, you, you <laughs> literally we didn't plan that. That's just how this conversation's naturally wound up. So, David, thank you so much for coming in straight off to or straight out of the van. Um, everything that's me is falling apart is on at Greenside. It's at Greenside on Infirmary Street, yeah. On Infirmary yeah. Street. And then I'll be doing uh, previews for the next show from next March, I think which is called... Do you want me to talk about that briefly? Yes. Okay. Um, So that's called These Lanes I Watch Into the Fog. And that is a line from a diary from this man. Um, When I was growing up, there was a man on my street who he didn't know anyone else. He was 103 when he died in 2001. Uh, He didn't didn't have any other family. And my mum used to take his shopping in for him. So when he died, the house clearance company came to us and asked if we would like to look around his house before they binned everything. And we found these... um, diaries and poems and stories about this place in the in uh, the northeast coast that had been lost to the sea in the 1930s and so there's like and there's almost no record of it otherwise but there is all this dossier of this man and this place's life so i'm writing a sort of eulogy oh it's going to be a musical um with four different types of animation about this place that's been lost to the climate but it's also about time and death I feel that the words Powell and Pressburger are intensifying <laughs> as we go. <laughs> it really feels, I mean, I love Powell and Pressburger. Oh, yeah. It really feels like they're, you know, as you get older, yeah, you you appreciate those kind of artists loads, loads more. Yeah. Know? So I think people who are in their 40s and 50s might really enjoy that because it's about a bygone age, really. Yeah. And about my childhood and about his childhood, you know. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, so that's on the way. But uh, everything that's me is falling apart is on at the Greenside from the 4th to the 12th, 12th of August. Uh, David, social handles, if you want to plug them. Mm-hmm. I'm at, uh, at David Callahan on Twitter. I'm on threads now. Oh, it'll be my Instagram. Yeah. It? My Instagram is at Callahandle this. 
Yeah, I was a different kind of artist, I guess. I mean, the the theme of this podcast, we all change, we move in unusual and mysterious ways. But yes, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. And uh, have a good fringe. You too. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this first episode of Not Your Usual. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe or follow us on your favourite podcasting app. Not Your Usual was presented and produced by me, Peter Simpson, for The Skinny Magazine and brought to you by Glava, the one and only tangerine honey spiced whiskey liqueur. You can find out more about Glava at glava.com. Mm-hmm.